The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. We are the brave ones to be out. We thought winter was done. It's kind of nice having a more cozy group sometimes. Last week uh, we did more of a Q&A about practice, but this week I thought it'd be good to uh, talk about the five aggregates. And this is uh, basically the Buddha's attempt to answer the question, what is this? Did I mention this last week? It's kind of like a quiz. You know, just it's interesting how our mind might address this question if somebody asks you, so what is this? You know, referring to like this experience that we're having. What is this? And if somebody answers in a conventional way like, well, this is me. I'm at Common Ground. It's Sunday night. That's not a very good grade. You know, that's like a D or a C minus if you say that. You know, and you get a slightly better grade if you say, is that a trick question? What is this? Because at least there's some humility in the mind, like, I wonder what he's asking about. What's going on here? We're not just sort of dishing out the basic answer. Oh, yeah, this is me, or this is my life, or this is my experience here. As a 58-year-old person at Comground on a snowy Sunday evening, this is what this is. And then, you know, a little bit, more grounded in the present moment might be, well, this is the experience of seeing, or this is the experience of hearing, or this experience includes thinking. So kind of deconstructing and naming the different elements of the experience. You know, I'm feeling some hardness as my sits bones press into the cushion, or I'm seeing visual experience like this or hearing sounds that are like this. So then our response to the question, what is this, is to start to name some of the specific elements or characteristics of what's being known. Maybe that's like a B answer to the question. And then maybe a a slightly better grade you get when your response is, Really, what this is, is just stuff being known. Stuff being known in what I call the mind. There is uh, many hundred years after the time of the Buddha, there arose in the Buddhist tradition in northern India a school or a lineage called the mind-only school, Yogacara. And, uh, you know, in the mind-only school, they were interested in this truth. I mean, it's really true that there may be some external reality, but what we know only ever is what is known in the mind, right? Seeing, like I think, well, I'm seeing stuff out there, but my actual experience of seeing is something's being seen. And where is that being seen? In the mind. Something's being heard in the mind. Something is being thought in the mind. Even sensation is being felt or known in the mind. So we can help it as a living being 
with a sensitive mind, we can help but experiencing everything through the mind. There is nothing outside of the experience that's being known in the mind. Does that make sense? So that's a pretty good grade. Like if you said, in response to the question, you know, what is this? You would say, well, the mind is just knowing different things, but it's all being known here in the mind. That's what it is. And then there's a story in the tradition. It's not in the early discourses, not in the sort of early teachings, but in later tradition, there arose this story, you know, so it it may not be true in terms of an historic event, but it refers back to the time of the Buddha where he evidently, you know, in terms of this legend or story, he gave a talk to a bunch of his monks and other practitioners, but he didn't say anything. He just held up a flower. Maybe you've heard it's quite famous in the Zen tradition. He just held up a white flower. And then one person, this well-known monk, Maha Kasapa, got it, as the story goes, at least. And uh, maybe all they exchanged was just a very subtle, serene smile back and forth. And so this is Not this verbal answer, but this experience. Like if somebody were to ask you, what is this? You know, you could try that, but it has to be authentic. You know, it's like there's a term actually in the tradition, tatagata or tata is actually the root word that would be translated as something like thusness or suchness. You've probably, some of you maybe have heard that term. It's used more in, in other traditions of Buddhism. Like, Here in this tradition, we'd call it the way it is. But not in terms of a concept like the way it is, but seeing, experiencing in a way that's not mediated by our ideas or language or thoughts about things. So the, what is this moment? What is the experience of this moment not mediated by language? So the Buddha holds up the flower and Mahakasapa is there in the moment without expectation, without grasping, without neurotically needing to answer the question, what is this? There's a very funny story, actually, just kind of pointing out the differences in the different traditions, but there was a very well-known Zen teacher from Korea Uh, at the Providence Zen Center. I'm forgetting his name right now. Maybe somebody remembers. And he evidently sat down with a well-known Tibetan teacher and they were going to sort of have this Dharma conversation. And, you know, there's a crowd of students around. And in a lot of traditions, uh, both in Zen and in the Tibetan tradition, there's this sort of this uh, tradition of debate. Uh, Like... uh, but really, not just on a philosophical level, but trying to get at this more essential level of suchness. And so the Zen teacher from Korea grabs, I guess he had it in his pocket or something, pulls out an orange, what is this? <laughs> and uh, the dependent teacher, not really familiar with what he was up to, turned to his translator, he doesn't know what an orange is? <laughs> <laughs> But it was the same sort of thing. Not necessarily looking for a, 
a verbal answer to the question, but sort of, me, you know, sometimes we say meeting mind to mind, especially in Zen, they'll talk about like that, meeting of mind and mind, not mediated by my idea, my interpretation of who you are, or who you think I am, and how I can impress you, sort of stepping outside of all those, all that fear and need and limitation. So that may be, in response to the question, what is this, may be a really good answer if we can step into that place of freedom, the mind not bounded, not limited by language, by our ideas of things. In a way, it's what we mean by emptiness. So realizing the mind that's empty, not bound by any idea or any fixation, any fear, any need. So this is a way to introduce this topic of the five aggregates. It's really the Buddha's response. And the Buddha was totally pragmatic, totally functional. So his response to the question, what is this, wasn't meant to be some metaphysical truth. This is the way it is. You can write that down and don't forget it and believe in it because it's the truth. It was more like he gave a functional answer that when you relate to experience, relate to this with this frame, it supports the mind releasing what's not necessary, like fear, like greed, like confusion. And so that his answer was the five aggregates. What is this? The five aggregates. The word is kanda, and it, it means like a heap of something, a bunch of something. Evidently, it also refers to like a trunk of a tree, sort of another meaning of it. But in this practice, it's pointing to what, what makes up the experience we call me, the body and mind, right? The five heaps of the, uh, the body or form, which really refers to the five physical senses, the seeing, the hearing, the tasting, the smelling, and the touching, so that's body or form. That's one of the five aggregates. And then the other four are the mind, just for basically dividing the experience of mind into four parts. The mind feels, the mind perceives, the mind has intention and other sort of dispositions, tendencies that arise, and the mind is conscious. It see it experiences like experiences illuminated. It can be known by conscious awareness through conscious awareness. So this is the mind, and we have the body, and together it's a response to well, what is this? Well, it's the activity of the mind and body. It's the activity of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. It's the activity of perceiving my mind, recognizing. And it recognizes, it's like, that's a bit of a construction because like, like me, in this moment, my mind recognizing this experience of a bunch of people in a room that I recognize as the meditation hall, that's a perception. I recognize this experience. And then there's a feeling associated with each perception. 
And our mind, it can't help but recognize every moment. Even if we're having an experience we've never had before, we'll recognize that as an experience I don't recognize. So that's also a recognition, right? It's a perception. I don't know what the heck this is. That's a perception. And each perception has a feeling tone. And we can't stop that from happening. You can't stop your mind from perceiving and from having a feeling tone associated with each feeling, I mean with each perception. And then the mental formations, because we've been alive for a while, we have a lot of cognitive stuff in in the basement. And so whenever I have a perception, whenever there's contact, I have an experience, the mind perceives something, it recognizes something, and it inclu- even if it's just, I don't know what this is, and it has a feeling, and that perception, that feeling then sort of draw off of this, all the stuff in the basement, all the dispositional, all the tendencies of the mind that in any way relate to the experience that's being known, they then come to the surface, Right? So I see Paige over there, or Carlos, or anybody that I recognize. Then when I see Jeremy over here, then whether I want to or not, it's not something I do, but all my previous experiences with that shape form, you know, somebody who looks like that, that all comes up. Oh, yeah, he teaches at McPhail, you know, and all the sort of, and I like him, or I don't like him, or I don't know about whether I like him or don't like him. I mean, all that stuff comes to the surface, not because anybody wants it to, but because that's part of what the mind does. It has this basement of tendencies that are just waiting to come alive when there's the appropriate stimuli. Some of you have had bad experiences with a dog. So if you're walking down a street and you perceive dog, you know, and then you have that unpleasant feeling of terror and all of your past trauma with dogs comes to the surface. And another person, you know, can have a completely different experience seeing a dog. Ah, dog. You know, great. I'm going to have a moment. (laughs) And maybe a lick. So we have feeling, perception, mental formation, and then consciousness, again, is just It's a very simple, and we don't even need to understand what it is, but what we know is all of these things are being known, right? The seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, being known. It's somehow being illuminated and being known. Feeling can be known. Perception can be known. All of these mental formations and tension, all this stuff coming out of the dispositional storehouse can be known. And so we have to add that to the mix. Part of the mind is this knowing, this conscious knowing. So the Buddha teaches to frame our experience in this way. There are these five heaps that are interacting that are there in every moment. Seeing, I mean, as long as we have eyes and ears and nose and tongue and sensitive skin, then these activities of the body are 
arising. They're part of the mix of what's happening in the moment. Same with feeling tone, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. So this is who we are, what we are. And the Buddha frames it this way so we can understand the cause of suffering and the cause of release. It wasn't that he framed it this way because this is the best way to frame it, this is the only way to frame it, this is the absolute metaphysical truth of who we are. No, because when we see it this way, you know, he could have divided the mind any number of ways, but he divided, he organized the experience of mind and body in this way because it's relatively easy to notice what he calls, this is a, a concept he coined, because the word kanda, which I'm translating as aggregate, that word existed at the time of the Buddha. It was not a new word. But he combined the word kanda with grasping or clinging. So, Because he, he's basically talking about the mind, the, these five things of the mind and body as the fuel for suffering. So when you think of a fire, you know, and you take something pretty innocuous like a log. There's nothing evil about the log, but it actually turns out to be really good fuel for a fire that can do a lot of destruction when you get that fire going. And it's the same thing with the mind and body, these five heaps of stuff, right? There's nothing wrong with the sensitivity to sight or touch. There's nothing wrong with having a feeling tone associated with each experience or the mind perceiving, recognizing the experience or the intentions and other tendencies that arise because we have a, are having an experience or that it's being known and consciously aware of. There's nothing good or bad. That's just the nature of the body and the mind. It's the nature of having a life, having existence. But it turns out that when you have a body and mind, when you have these five things, it's pretty easy to become a suffering being. Have you noticed? Right? But it's the same way like with the log and the fire that can, st- uh, can sort of burn because of the log, independence on the log. We wouldn't say that it's the fault of the log that there's a fire, but in a way... You don't get a fire without the log, without the fuel. You don't get a suffering being without this dynamic of mind and body. So the Buddha refers to what this is as the five clinging aggregates or the five aggregates of clinging. Right? He's saying that from an ordinary human point of view, the body and mind is a problem not in its essence, but because it provides the fuel for suffering. That's really an interesting. So this is what I meant, that the reason the, body, the Buddha is using this way of talking about life, about existence, is because he, he wants to use this map, this way of understanding, in a way that will help us understand better the root of suffering, like how the mind gets tight, how the mind gets stressed out. Well, it's basically, there's this activity, and and flame is what the Buddha used. He used that metaphor of a burning fire and its dependence on fuel, right? So independence on these five things 
there's an activity, and you can call that activity suffering or stress or craving or attachment, identification, reactivity. These are some of the different words that we use. But the point is it's stressful, it hurts, and that activity is dependent on this dynamic of mind and body, of a sensitive body that sees, hears, tastes, and smells, and feels touch, and a mind that has feeling and perception and mental formations, all of which is being known, that provides the fuel for suffering. So the Buddha says, formally and also now, I make known just suffering and the cessation of suffering. So he's not talking about who we are or where we came from, but trying to set kind of a conceptual base so that the mind can see the root of suffering, how it arises, how it ceases. And it's really interesting, uh, in the morning, which is the 10.30 session on Sunday morning, it's really the same that we have Sunday night and Wednesday night, except on Sunday morning we do some chants right at the beginning. And one of the chants we do is the Metta Sutta, the Buddhist Discourse on Loving-Kindness. We chant that in English. And uh, it has its, it's very beautiful. It's just about loving in all directions, sending love out in all directions, no matter who or what. And then it ends that when you do this, you know, in a really full, complete way, then basically all your problems end and you will not be born again into this world. That's a very provocative ending, right? Because, you know, what we think we want is like, I just want continued existence. I don't want it to end. And especially if I'm doing really well and I don't have any problems, I definitely don't want life to end then, you know. So how could it be that that the fruit of practicing really well and, and sort of putting aside all problems, that the fruit of that, the reward would be, will not be born again into this world. It's like, no. <laughs> but it's interesting. And I'll just another story before I explain it a little bit more. Somebody wants to ask Trungpa Rinpoche, who was a very controversial but also well-known Tibetan teacher who came to the, sta- well, to the West pretty early, first to England and then to the U.S., and started, some of you might have heard of Naropa University in, in Boulder, Colorado. It's quite a well-known place now, but maybe still today is the only Buddhist university in this country. Somebody asked him in the early 70s once he had arrived, what gets reborn? This is one of those questions that Buddhist teachers get ans- asked a lot. So you keep talking about this impersonal nature, how, you know, this not-self nature. So what gets reborn then? And he had this great answer. He said, well, neurotic tendencies get reborn. Or another way you could say this is, any unfinished business is what gets reborn. No unfinished business, no rebirth. Still, neurotic tendencies, you'll have rebirth. Now, I'm not asking anybody to believe in this. It's not useful, actually, to believe in rebirth or 
to not believe in it is also not useful. The, the useful thing is to realize with great clarity that we don't know, right? Isn't that true? Anybody know with certainty? No, we don't know. So that's a refuge, is knowing that we don't know. But it's a useful thing to play with, the idea that if there is rebirth, it's not me that's getting reborn. That's not a Buddhist. You'd get an F with that answer. Like if, if somebody asked you in a Buddhist exam, who gets reborn, and you said, well, I do, or awareness does, or something like that, you'd fail. Because it's so clear that, you know, the Buddha was so clear that that's just not the case, that you or somebody, some essential you, gets reborn. The soul or something that gets reborn. That's not the Buddhist teaching. The Buddhist teaching is that whatever this is that continues on moment by moment, and perhaps lifetime by lifetime, whatever that is, it's a natural process without a center. There is a con- continuity, but that con- there's no essential center to that continuity. Just like spring goes to summer, goes to fall, goes to winter, goes to spring, but can you locate the center of that winter that's about to become spring? No. There's no center to it. Even your car, which feels so much like a thing, is there an essential essence to your car? Like if I took it apart, put the carburetor here and the bumpers there and the seats here, and where is the car? It's just a term we use when all those parts come together, and then we say, well, that's a car. This is winter. This is Mark. But there's no center to it. Although we imagine that there is, right? I mean, psychologically speaking, we imagine like, oh, yeah, no, I'm here pretty sure that I'm here. It's me. It's not somebody else. But that's just a thought. And if we identify with the thought, that's just attachment to the thought. Just that feeling of being attached, being certain. That's just something being known. So there's just, so not born again into this world, or his answer, you know, neurotic tendencies. So this is important about when the mind, when the mind or the understanding in the mind understands the nature of the five aggregates, just a log, then the fire doesn't burn anymore. The fire really is, you know, the, in terms of the metaphor of the fire burning on the log, burning dependent on the mind and body. The, <coughs> the, Going out of the fire is when the mind no longer misunderstands what the body and mind are, what the five aggregates are. So a lot of the ways the Buddha used this teaching on the five aggregates, the mind and body, is to see the impersonal nature. And he had many ways. I mean, there were like 150 talks where he talked about the five aggregates. So remember, just because I know it sounds a little weird to use a phrase you haven't heard before, the five aggregates, but it's just a more sophisticated way of the Buddha talking about the mind and body. right? The sensitivity of the body, the five physical senses, and then these four aspects of the mind. And he chose these four aspects because it, it's how the mind tends to take personally how it feels. 
that's like really unpleasant, it's really nice. Or we tend to take personally the perception, oh, Jeremy, and we cling to that. Common ground. The Buddhist teachings, right? We cling to whatever we perceive. And we take intention. See, one of the most interesting, most seductive part of mental formations are the intentions that get triggered, that kind of get born out of that dispositional soup that's there in the basement, right? So we have contact, we have experience, and then some intention arises out of that, like, I'm going to study Buddhism, or I'm going to get up early and sit in the morning. Well, that's just that intention, you know, arising out of all that mental formations, all that mental cognitive stuff. It feels personal, though, doesn't it? Intention feels really personal. But did you, like, intend to have that intention? No, it just arose. It's like if somebody flashed a picture of ice cream, you know, all of a sudden I would think, God, maybe I'll stop at the co-op before I go home and get some ice cream. That intention just can arise because of some little trigger. right? But it's not personal. Same with consciousness. The fact that this is all being known, it really seems to impute that there's a me that's knowing it. But you can't find that me. All you know that things are being known. That's obvious, right? Things are being known. But are you knowing this experience? You see how that's extra? That's just a thought, like, I'm knowing this. That's a thought that's being known. That's not actually you that's knowing. Can you actually find the you that's knowing the experience that's conscious? The, the later, like 800 years after the Buddha, there's this famous Buddhist monk, Buddha Gosa was his name, and he wrote a sort of a, a book of commentary on the Buddhist teachings that is quite uh, well known in the <clears throat> Theravada Buddhist tradition, like places like Burma and Thailand. They use this book called The Path of Purification, the Vasudhimaga, it's called. And um, in that, he has this great line, he says, Doing is, but no doer can be found. Suffering is, right, clearly. Suffering is, but no sufferer can be found. We could say knowing is, knowing happens, but no knower can be found. This is just a simple truth for you to check out on your own. Because clearly there is consciousness, there is awareness, things are being known. But can you find the knower? No. You can have a thought, I'm knowing, but you can, that's just another thing being known, that thought, I'm knowing. It's not the knowing. That, That sight is being known, sound is being known, touch is being known, thought is being known. That's just a natural process we call awareness or consciousness. In the same way that there's a feeling it's kind of neutral now, or it's kind of pleasant now, or it's unpleasant. Those things just keep happening in the same way that all of nature just keeps happening. There are causes and conditions, mind and body. And when it's misunderstood, then that's the fire burning in dependence on the body and mind. When we misunderstand this, 
then it feels personal. And then when there, when things feel personal, then something gets thrown into the mix. Greed, anger, and delusion, right? Because when things feel personal, then greed makes sense. Then hate and aversion and fear make sense and delusion makes sense. Misunderstanding. Another way the Buddha talks about the, you know, in just in terms of understanding the body and mind, the five aggregates in personal ways, he has this great teaching about uh, <clears throat> the uh, the body, you know, the sensitivity of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling is like the foam. You know, if you look at a, go to a lake and you, where there's constant surf, you get that little sea foam sitting there. And that was the image he used because it, <clears throat> touch feels so real. Like just touch something with your hand. You know, and you, and you feel that it feels real, but what is touch? See, the mind imputes more to it than is there. It's just hardness being known or softness being known or warmth being known or coolness being known. It's not like the solidity of my leg is being known because that's a thought being known. But the actual experience of touch, what's that? It's like, he calls it like foam. And he said feeling is like a bubble, like in a heavy rain and you get the little bubbles. There's a feeling, oh, this is really unpleasant. Think about how seduced we are by pain, but how ephemeral it is. Like we've had some very, most of us, maybe all of us, have had some very significant physical and emotional pain, right? Anybody not have significant physical and emotional pain? <laughs> we all have had it. But where is it now? Where is that? I mean, some of it was devastating, the pain that we felt. And we've already, uh, most of us have had really amazingly beautiful, pleasant experiences in life. Emotional, emotionally pleasant, physically pleasant experience, a good massage. I'm getting a massage tomorrow at 12 noon. <laughs> Looking forward to it. But where are those pleasant feelings now? They're gone. So he, the Buddha likens that, the pleasant and unpleasantness of life, to like little bubbles. They seem real, but they're pretty ephemeral. It's like you might go home, you know, and get a little bubble, like, you know, there's something funny on the internet. A little delight, and then it's gone. Or a, a little painful interaction with somebody you live with, and then you're petting your cat, and it's gone. Something else is happening. So to look at sight, sound, the body, bodily experience as like, as ephemeral as foam, feeling tone as ephemeral as a bubble. And then he likened uh, perception like a mirage. Like you see on a hot day, you know, it looks like there's a lake there. Because, you know, like I mentioned, seeing Jeremy or seeing Hans or any of the folks that I know and recognize or recognize the room or recognize my notes, It seems like, because 
And the perception kind of brings in a whole story, right? Oh, it's Minneapolis out there. But actually what it is, it's just, you know, grays and a little, a little green light. And, you know, it's just that visual experience. It's not Minneapolis. Minneapolis is a concept. But in my mind, in terms of my mind, it's like a mirage because like it has a lot of meaning. I grew up in Minneapolis. I was born in St. Mary's Hospital. It's, you know, and that used to be this. Norma Jeans was over here. This used to be a corner with five bars. Some of you remember. It's called the Hub of Hell. Like all that, that's all the mental formations because I've got all this history. I know all this stuff. But that's like a mirage, like all that perception, all that recognition, all the stuff I bring. And then the mental formations, the Buddha likens it to a banana tree. I know it seems a little weird. But the interesting thing about a banana tree, they, it looks pretty substantial. When you, I don't know if you've actually seen a banana tree. You know, and there's a lot of weight. But you would think, like, oh, good, there's going to be some good wood in that banana tree. But you might know this. A banana tree, it's not even, I don't think it's actually a tree. Because when you peel away, you know, the outer surface, there's nothing there in a banana tree. It's like, you know, there's no heartwood. There's no solidity to a banana tree. So this is like mental formation, like all of this sort of basement stuff, all this sort of churning urn of stuff we have in the heart and the gut, all the unfinished business, all of the wounds, all the pleasant memories, all that stuff feels so much like me, like a solid banana tree, but there's no core to it. Core to it. It's essentially void and empty, the Buddha says. And then consciousness he refers to as a, mag- a magician's trick. In the sense of it Im- seems to impute or imply a knower. Turns out there's no knower. It's just things being known. Knowing is happening, no knower can be found. So there's a discourse, and I'll leave it here, open it up for discussion, but the Buddha says, Practitioners, I will teach you the burden, the carrier of the burden, the taking up of the burden, the casting off of the burden. Listen and pay close attention. I will speak. And then the people who were there at the time responded, As you say, Venerable Sir. And the Buddha said, And what and which is the burden? The five clinging aggregates, right? Clinging to the mind and body, clinging to these aspects of the mind and body. It should be said, Which five? Form or body as a clinging aggregate, feeling as a clinging aggregate, perception as a clinging aggregate, mental formations as a clinging aggregate, consciousness as a clinging aggregate. This practitioner is called the burden. right? So not the body and mind itself, but the body and mind as fuel for the fire of attachment, of clinging, of grasping, of taking the activity of the body and mind personally. And that's what he goes to next. And which is, and which is the carrier of the burden? The person, it should be said. This person with such a name, this is called the carrier of the burden, the idea of self, the idea of me. 
And then the Buddha asks, and which is the taking up of the burden? The craving that makes for further becoming, accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now here, now there, i.e. craving for sensual pleasure, craving for becoming, craving for non-becoming. Right? All the ways we want something to become, want something to be. All the ways we want... Uh, it's basically all the ways the mind is, gets dependent on the natural and impersonal unfolding of the mind and body, what's happening in and around us, right? The mind gets dependent on that. That's what we call craving or attachment. It's the mind's dependence. In the same way, fire is dependent on fuel. When the mind gets dependent on the natural, impersonal, lawful unfolding, then there's suffering. And in Buddhism, we call that craving. But you can call it attachment. You can call it struggling. When the mind is dependent or struggling, attached, craving, independence on one's experience, then there's suffering. That's, you know, that's the taking up of the burden. And what and which is the casting off of the burden, the Buddha asks. And he says, the remainderless dispassion, renunciation, relinquishment, release, and letting go of that very craving. This is called casting off of the burden. So that's the solution, according to the Buddha at least. You want the resolution of suffering? Then it's not about getting rid of the mind and body. That's craving for cessation, right? He names that as a cause for suffering. Like, God, if I only didn't have a mind and body. It's like saying, if I only didn't exist, then I'd be happy. No, then you wouldn't exist, (laughs) right? So it's not about not existing. It's about not being confused by existence, not being confused by the activity of the mind and body. So it's the... Like learning how to be wood without fire, right? Without being creating this this fire that's dependent on the wood. What is human existence without craving? Can you do it? Can we do it? Can we live our life? Can we do Monday without craving? But you see, we have this very seductive idea that life is a struggle. We're, We're really tied to that. So that's why, like, when we're sitting, we're, we're creating a simple environment to experiment, like, can I just let everything be without assuming there's a problem, without struggling? So it's like we say, if you want to be free, you have to sit down and practice being free. And when you get really good at sitting down and practicing being free, then go on the road, like, stand up and live your life but continue to practice letting everything be. Letting the body and mind, the five aggregates, be without the craving. Because the problem isn't the body and the mind. It's not, the problem isn't having an existence. The problem is the fire that burns dependent on existence. And the Buddha names that as craving or attachment. 
That's the only thing that has to cease. A lot of people think, oh God, I don't want to do this practice because I really like life. I want to enjoy life. right? I want to engage it. I want to make it a better place. I want to do fun things, <clears throat> eat good food, play with my friends. right? Well, the problem isn't life. The problem is the fire that burns in dependence on having a mind and body. So what does that engagement look like? Can, you, can we imagine it? Can we live it without the craving? It would be nice to share now in the last 10 minutes you know, your own experience or what you see gets in the way of recognizing more clearly this activity of the mind and body What gets in the way of just letting that be nature, free of craving? How does craving come in? This is what the Buddha is calling the taking up of the burden, the craving that makes for further becoming, right? Accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now here, now there, craving for sense pleasure, craving to become somebody, craving to be done with things. So thoughts that you have, questions you have about the talk tonight, let's use the mic. And remember, on Sunday nights, we do record. So you can keep that in mind if you want to, when you decide to share. Anybody want to start? Nick, please start us off. Um, Something that I've noticed with um, uh, why it's hard to let kind of the mind and body just be is that it kind of feels, I mean, touched on it when you were doing the guided sit, it doesn't feel safe. It feels dangerous just to let it be. There is some kind of need to have to control it or do it. And that's kind of what I've noticed from practicing. Yeah, which makes a lot of sense then that like when one of the trainings we do is just let the breath happen because it's so hard. Have you noticed how difficult it is to be really clearly aware of this very natural process? And remember, most of the day we are unaware of the breath and it does fine. But then we bring this attention to the breath a refined, continuous awareness of the breath. And all of a sudden, we see that very deep habit to control things. And But we take up the training to just let it be nature. Let the breath come in as nature. Let it go out as nature. No skin in the game. Trust the nature of the what we call the body to breathe in. Trust the nature of the body to breathe out. And if we get good with the breath, then we can do it with our whole life. Like I was sort of in a kidding way saying about Monday. Like just let Monday happen. Let the personality, let the nature of the personality, the nature of the body-mind, let it do Monday. Why do we have to construct a somebody who has to do Monday? That is such a burden. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Other thoughts? Yeah, Paige, please. So there's this natural lawful unfolding, and I feel like in my practice I've gotten better at letting that, letting that be. And, and I think in a way where I used to take everything really personally, I'm not doing that anymore. And that's really a freeing place to be. Um, but part of me wonders, um, partially through feedback from others, if you know, I if I'm not just getting really good at 
intellectualizing things and then and then experiencing my life at a distance if that makes sense and so i'm wondering your thoughts on how to relate skillfully to feelings and and be present with feelings um without you know overly intellectualizing and and kind of just keeping everything at such a distance where you're not actually entering in. Does that make sense? Yeah, I know. It's a really good point. And it reminds me of a little teaching from one of my teachers, Michelle McDonald, who said uh, one of the advantages of being able to do a long retreat is that we're able to give up some of our false equanimity because it's a real shadow in Buddhist practice because we've been told or we've read that equanimity is the way, right? So we take a shortcut and we just pretend we're equanimous. I'm okay. And it's especially, you know, that Minnesota nice. No problem. Fine. <laughs> but what it, it's sort of what you were saying, that it's more of an emotional distance, which is a, a flavor of aversion, right? Like, you know, I'm going to remove myself because it's too unpleasant to be intimate. So the thing about feeling is we need to be intimate with feeling in order to be equanimous. We need to feel deeply, right? So the, the capacity to be free is not that we don't feel things, but we're, not, we're okay feeling things. We're not afraid to feel things. So it's not about not feeling. It's being okay, including okay with intense feelings, intensely beautiful feelings, intensely painful feelings, but not pushed around by the intensity or enormity of feeling. That's a sign of wisdom. It's not that we don't feel, but we're not confused by feeling. And you you see that. It's like, uh, I don't know if it's really true, but uh, there's some truth to it, the statement that a wise person, a well-practiced person, is the first to cry, the first to laugh, the first to sort of have an, an emotional response, they're just not confused by the emotion that's moving through them that they're feeling. They're not, it's not like getting stuck anywhere, but it, it means you're feeling things even in a more raw, direct, immediate way, not a numb way. And then just it came up when you were sharing two page that remember numbness, this is an unrelated point, Numbness is also a feeling, right? So when numbness is the feeling that is being felt, then we practice being intimate, feeling that desert of numbness, like, oh, nothing's happening, it's all flat. Well, that's just a feeling. Can I be intimate with that feeling? It will change like every other feeling. It comes and goes. I don't need to pathologize feeling numb. Sometimes it's really a warm, beautiful feeling of love. Sometimes it's a raw feeling of terror. Sometimes it's a numb, flat, you know, neutral feeling. It's just a feeling. And we don't, we practice not telling ourselves the feeling we should be having. Instead, we practice having the feeling, feeling the feeling we are having that is showing up in the moment. Time for one more comment or question, sharing from your own life experience. Anybody like to go? 
Yeah, please, Dave. Yeah, I, these, this idea of this neurotic activity of the mind being reborn, it, 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 to me, that's kind of, I can see that in my life, like long periods of time in the past where, you know, it's just, ch- I was just chasing my tail and, and my, my thoughts and my speech and actions were, were coming out of that. And, but now it seems like at times that uh, when I'm more present, I can um, g- give some of that away in a, in a sense by uh, being generous to someone that, in a way that, that can, e- can reduce suffering or lead to joy or happiness. And is that, that almost seems like kind of a rebirth also. And I, you know, I, this whole rebirth thing, it's like, you know, I think I'm always off on a tangent. Yeah. wondering what's going on with, if, if, if that's not kind of the same thing. Well, yeah, no, I think it's really good, actually, to think about rebirth. Like, if you want to understand what happens at the time of the death, the Buddha says this, basically. Understand moment to moment what's happening now. Then you understand what happens at the time of the death. Because when you, there's a way of looking at your present moment experience as one moment of death after another. A moment of experience arises. So in the tradition, often we talk about experience as moments of mind. And this moment of mind arises in just one moment. So less than a second, you know, a very small fraction of a second, there's a moment of mind. And then that moment of mind, what does it do? It ceases. But before it ceases, it conditions the arising of the next moment of mind. So this is the thing that's very confuses the mind is there is this continuity but it's because one moment of mind is conditioning the next moment of mind. That's how you get change. That's how you get continuity. But all along, there's a death and then a birth and a death and a birth. And when, you, when awareness gets really refined, you begin, the mind begins to intuit the real endings that are happening, that a, a mind is ending. And so at Death, you know, this is just a story, but it's, I think, a useful story. It's the same thing, where a mind is ending, but before it ends, it conditions the arising of the next mind. It just so happens that that next arising is not in that physical body anymore, because that body's died. It's no longer a vehicle or paired up with the mind, because the trajectory of the mind stream is different than the trajectory of the body. We always associate the two as one thing, but that's just through lack of imagination or lack of paying attention because it's very clear that the trajectory of the body is not the same as the mind. Right? You can have a, a body that's really falling apart on its last throes, but the mind may be fine. Or you can have a mind that's just not doing well at all but the body is vibrant, healthy. I mean, you can have all kinds of... So they're not really... They're, they're tethered together karmically in this life, the body and mind. But when the life of this body ends, then who knows what happens. But why do we assume the mind stream ends? So in Buddhism, like in the tradition at least, one mind moment conditions the next. So that mind then 
takes rebirth, perhaps in another mind, or maybe it's in a, a limbo state for a while. What do they call it in Catholicism? Purgatory for a while, you know, until it takes rebirth. But who knows? I don't know. And I don't think we need to know, because we can know right now, moment to moment, how one mind ends conditioning the next moment of mind, that ends conditioning the next moment of mind. And so like what you were saying, Dave, about a moment of generosity, it's like a rebirth, right? So it's like if my mind is dwelling in a really negative way, then the next mind moment might be just a little bit of wisdom that understands my mind is really in a negative place, right? So now it's a little bit different. It's not just in a negative space, but there's some wisdom. And then the next mind moment might be sort of recognizing this opportunity for generosity, right? And then the next moment, realizing how enlivening it is to be generous. There's probably many more mind moments, you know, to get from A to where we ended up with a moment of generosity. But you get the idea that it's not a... It's not this linear, closed system where there's no free will. Because the way change happens is in the mind being clearly aware of the lawful conditioning nature of one mind moment conditioning the next. To the degree my mind is aware of how my anger in this moment is conditioning the next arising of the mind, breaks the heart wide open. It brings in the compassion. Oh, honey, be careful, right? And so that compassion now is conditioning the next moment. What can we do about this? Oh, look it. I can be generous in this way. I can take care of myself in this way. Oh, look it. I don't feel so tied up into anger anymore. This really works. Oh, look it. There's some confidence arising. Oh, look it. You know, how one thing leads to another. But the awareness of how it one thing leads to another, is a powerful intervention. We can't, sh- we can't change what's showing up because that's arising out of the past, the way this moment is right now. But how I understand it, like is the mind clearly aware or am I understanding it based on habit? That's how we intervene in the present moment. Do we see with clarity in a neutral, no agenda way or are we seeing according to habit? Because if we keep seeing according to habit, we keep replicating the same patterns over and over again. We get stuck, basically, in our habit energies. But we're a couple minutes over, so let's leave it here. Thanks, everyone, for your comments. Really nice to hear from folks. Just enough time to take a couple breaths together. It's okay to let go of the words. Appreciating this body-mind, the nature of the body and mind. Thanks for coming, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.